Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Melissa Feinberg about her new book, Communism in Eastern Europe, which was published by Routledge in 2021. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, thanks for having me. So just a little background on Dr. Feinberg before we begin. She is a professor of history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and author of Elusive Equality, Gender, Citizenship, and the Limits of Democracy in Czechoslovakia, which was published with the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2006, and Curtain of Lies, The Battle Over Truth in Stalinist Eastern Europe, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Her courses include 20th Century Europe, Eastern Europe After 1945, The Modern Girl, and History of Human Rights. So Melissa, can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Well, actually, it wasn't my idea to write this book. Um, A number of years ago, uh, I was in my office um, at Rutgers, and um, an editor had been um, visiting one of my colleagues, Bonnie Smith, and she came into my office and asked me, um, not the book that I wanted to write, but if there were any books that I thought should be written. And um, at the time, I was teaching my class on Eastern Europe after 1945, and I was frustrated by the fact that there were no um, good surveys um, to offer to my students as a way to situate them in in this field. And so I said, you know, I think we really need a new book like this. And a few weeks later, she emailed me and said, Melissa, why don't you write this book? <laughs> and um, and I, I thought about it for a while. And I decided that it, it would be something I wanted to take on. It then took me a few years to actually um, get around to, to, to writing it. Um, but I, I just, I felt very strongly that a book like this um, should uh, exist. I wanted to see a... Um, survey of Eastern Europe that, first of all, didn't take 1989 as an endpoint, um, that, you know, looked at the sort of communist and post-communist periods uh, as, as, as one and saw 1989 as more of uh, a middle um, than, than an end. So something that was written, you know, outside of just the Cold War context. Um, and and I also really wanted to write something that incorporated all of the excellent um, you know research that had been done about Eastern Europe um, again since since the 1990s and particularly research that looked outside the realm of high politics and uh, and that you know wanted to see. Uh, the communist and and post-communist regimes also of Eastern Europe as as complicated societies and not just as dictatorships. I mean, um, Eastern Europe under communism uh, was a land of dictatorships at the same time. One of the things I say in the book is that to understand these societies, it's not enough to simply call them dictatorships because these were complicated societies. And so... Uh, and and contradictory. So um, uh, one of the things I, I say in the introduction is that these were societies where, for example, it was 
impossible to find bananas in the stores. At the same time, there were regimes in which people had more to eat than ever before. Um, and uh, usually the way we think about Eastern Europe and the United States is we think about the first thing um, about, you know, privation and what people didn't have and not the other side of it. And so I wanted to try and write a book that put those two things together. Right. So juxtaposing the more positive aspects of life under communism against the negative ones and really highlighting the varied and often ambiguous ways in which people experienced communist rule and also just experienced everyday life. Um, And of course, this is something that often gets lost in conventional political histories of the region. Exactly. Okay, I'd like to talk about your preface now, because in your preface, you state that one of your aims in the book was to reframe the narrative of communism in Eastern Europe from the perspective uh, of the present. And you already alluded to this uh, in talking about continuities between the pre and post 1989 periods. But could you tell our listeners what the overall payoff is in conceptualizing and framing the communist period in this manner? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, we do as historians, especially when we're teaching undergraduates, is to give people a way of understanding the contemporary world um, and to think about, you know, how we got to where we've been. Um, And certainly if we think about Eastern Europe today, right, you know, it's it's a, a region in which um, we've seen a lot of challenges to democracy. And, you know, if we take a sort of Cold War perspective of Eastern Europe, we would find that very surprising, right? If we're looking only from the vantage point of, of 1989, that, you know, where the a traditional way of thinking about that is that, you know, we had uh, communist societies and then all of a sudden they became free and, you know, um, it was possible for democracy to flourish. Um, instead of talking about the ways in which it was difficult for uh, democratic uh, regimes to become established in Eastern Europe and, and why that was. Um, so I think it, it gives us a way of, you know, better understanding how, for example, we can have Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, you know, with his illiberal democracy, or how we can have the popularity of the Law and Justice Party in in Poland, um, and and it gives us a way also of thinking about um, the conditions that are necessary for uh, stable democratic societies more generally. That you know they they don't just magically appear, um, and so I think that looking at Eastern Europe in that way just allows us to think about these these issues a bit more critically. Yeah, and that also, then we don't have to completely dismiss this pre-89 period, right? That we can understand popular frustrations, um, especially when we place them in the context of what happened prior to 89, how people lived and some of the losses that people experienced. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so before we dive into the establishment of these communist regimes and some of the policies and the way people uh, experienced uh, everyday life there, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little background on uh, Marx and Engels, dialectical materialism, and just the theory of history and society in which these regimes are based, at least officially, right? So the ideological basis for these regimes. Well, yeah, that's that's a that's that's a pretty big pretty big question. Um, but I guess maybe just to put it in a nutshell, um, you know, communists 
would believe that there is a, um, a, a, a theory of history that underscores all human development where society is going to sort of move forward along particular stages. Um, and these stages are characterized by different forms of class oppression and that in the capitalist stage of development, um, you will get a situation in which the wealth is concentrated um, ever more into the hands of fewer and fewer people who then you know, use their power to simply a- accumulate more and keep resources away from the vast majority of people. And uh, according to communist ideology, the only way to end that system of exploitation and oppression for the vast majority is to have a revolution and that through this revolution, then the resources of society and uh, the power structures will come into the hands of, of the people so that communists see themselves as an inevitable stage of historical development that eventually all societies will have to go through this and so in, in that kind of a worldview, um, you know, communism is kind of the, the last stage of human development and the one that will bring the best way of life for, for everyone, really, not even just for the most people, but, but for everyone. So that means that communists have a sense that what they're doing is for the greater good of humanity. Right. And that it's historically inevitable. Right. So, yeah, they are on the right side of history, but really the left side of history. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the establishment of communist rule. You note how these are not actually takeovers. Right. Um, and then you discuss, of course, uh, the, the surge in Communist Party membership after the war or in the immediate post-war period and kind of placing this in the context of the tumultuous interwar period. And then, of course, the, the massive death and devastation during the Second World War, who is supportive of, of communist rule uh, in the region during this time? You know, what are the reasons for joining the party? Um, and why aren't these takeovers? Why are these actually somewhat popularly supported uh, regimes? Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think it's an important one because many East Europeans today would certainly claim that communism was a foreign imposition in their countries, that it came uh, with the Red Army after the end of World War II and was um, something that was imposed from the outside. And there, there is an extent to which that is, is true. Communists came to power in Eastern Europe with the support of the Soviet Union. At the same time, in the immediate post-war period, there were uh, you know, many East Europeans who could see communism as the best way forward for their societies. And the numbers of those people are different in different countries, nonetheless, um, there were quite a few reasons why people across Eastern Europe might um, support communism. One of those reasons being what we were just talking about, the ways in which um, communism had a very forward-looking and sort of positive ideology that, you know, really appealed to many people um, in the aftermath of World War II as a, a possibility for a new way forward, given that the war seemed to prove the poverty of some of the ideologies that people had looked to previously, um, like like fascism. So with with those um, uh, 
uh, uh, ways of thinking about society somewhat discredited, communism for some gained a, a, a new kind of uh, legitimacy. Certainly, communists were able in some countries to position themselves um, as the force of anti-fascism so that their uh, you know, stand against Hitler gave them some legitimacy. Uh, uh, of course, right, um, the Soviet Union had briefly been allied with uh, Hitler or had, had a not, not allied with, but had a non-aggression pact with Hitler in 1939. Nonetheless, um, after 1941, many communist uh, partisans in Eastern Europe had been ones who really resisted um, Nazi forces and therefore had a certain, a certain kind of legitimacy uh, from, from that as well. And then, of course, you have the individuals who just kind of want to save their skin. So maybe they were uh, fascist sympathizers or even collaborators, but, um, you know, they want to make sure, again, they are on the right side of history. They become party members, right? Often ardent ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking of that because I was thinking of positive reasons <laughs> that people might want to support the communists. But but certainly, you know, again, as, as I mentioned, um, you know, because it becomes quite clear that at the end of the war, the Soviets are the military power in the region. There are all kinds of reasons why people might want to be affiliated with the communists, just to you know make sure that um, yeah, as you said, they're on the they're on the right side of history. So you get a mix of people who are supporting communism. Some people doing it out of out of self interest, right, to try and pick the right side in, you know, whatever is going to be next, um, and, and some people doing it out of idealism. And and this can, you know, cause real tensions, right, in between <laughs> people, right? Because, uh, you know, where people maybe doubt the ideological commitment of others. Um, although, you know, it's also true that some people who join the party um, opportunistically might become on the outside the most ideologically fervent in order to perhaps um, disguise their own personal motives for becoming communists. So socialist rule in Eastern Europe is diverse both geographically and temporally, but I'd like to talk about this early Stalinist period what does Stalinism look like in Eastern Europe? How was it different than the Stalinism that was implemented in the Soviet Union? And who was supportive of Stalinism? Who was resistant to it? And how did it shape everyday life more generally? Yeah, so, um, you know, after, after 1948, as the Cold War is heating up, communist regimes become established in Eastern Europe. And many of those regimes had initially gained support by um, telling people that they would find their own uh, local ways towards communism. So for example, um, Czechoslovak communists, you know, promised that they would not, um, you know, adopt the same policies that had been um, active in the Soviet Union, that they would have their own local Czechoslovak way towards creating a communist society. Um, nonetheless, as the Cold War began heating up, that became untenable. The um, Soviets began to um, pressure East European communist leaders to, in fact, adopt policies um, that had been associated with the Soviet Union. Um, and 
And so we, we begin to see more of a similarity in the way in which communist governments uh, operate um, throughout Eastern Europe. And this involved several things. First of all, a turn towards um, economic central planning and rapid industrialization. Um, it involved the collectivization of agriculture. And it also involved a turn towards terror uh, or, you know, increased oppression of those who were seen to be as opponents of the communist regime. Um, and these could be people who were associated with um, other political parties, um, so political opposition. They could be people who were seen as class enemies, so people who had been part of the bourgeoisie or middle class um, before communist regimes were established or a, a wide variety of, of other people who might be seen as um, possible enemies of the regime, um, including people who had ties with the West, um, who might be seen as somehow spying for, for, Western, for Western interests. And, you know, in the environment of Stalinism, right, where there's a, a desire uh, on the part of uh, communists to make sure that everyone is um, on board with the turn towards socialism and to find any possible enemies um, of the regime, it becomes maybe a little more difficult to determine who is really supporting these regimes and who is not because being open in your opposition would be more uh, potentially potentially dangerous. So I think, you know, this this is a situation. So your question was, you know, who might be supporting this this turn to Stalinism? It becomes a little more difficult to to say to say that. At the same time, um, I think, you know, uh, this is nonetheless a, a period in which um, there are certainly people, especially young people, who are excited about the ways in which communist regimes have a potential to rebuild uh, their war-torn societies in, in new ways. So that um, we certainly see, um, you know, especially young people who in the early 1950s are very enthusiastic um, communists because um, with the turn to a centrally planned economy, these are regimes that can really begin to, um, you know, focus uh, the economy on um, new kinds of rebuilding efforts. One example might be, um, you know, the creation of uh, new uh, socialist cities um, like the, the Polish uh, steel town of Nowohuta, uh, which is a city outside of Krakow that's built around a huge uh, steelworks. And uh, thousands and thousands of young people um, streamed to Nowohuta looking for, for opportunity, for jobs, um, but also just for the possibility to build something positive, you know, sort of on the, the ashes of, of the war. And so, you know, in, in, this, in this way, um, we do see, you know, some enthusiasm for, for communism. That was actually going to be my next question, because in chapter two, you have a section entitled, You Are the Ones to Dig the First Foundations, Industrialization and the Planned Economy. Uh, and in this section, you draw on some really wonderful stories, uh, everyday life stories uh, of individuals, men and women who were involved in essentially 
building uh, these socialist towns and cities, as well as the factories. So can you talk a little bit more about the everyday experience of building socialism? Yeah, so I just feel like I should say, as a synthesis, the stories that I have in this book are, for the most part, not from my own research, but from that of of others. So I feel like my my process in this book was to, you know, read a lot and like pick everyone's best stories and take them and use them. <laughs> and uh, for for this, I used the work uh, primarily of the historian uh, Catherine LeBeau in her book Unfinished Utopia about. Navahuta. And, you know, she writes about, you know, mostly uh, young men, although there were also uh, young women coming from uh, peasant uh, villages to uh, work building the new town of Navahuta. Um, and one of the examples she gives that I use in the book is of a uh, young man who came from a very, very impoverished village and he arrives to Novahuta and there he thinks he's going to work in a new city. And in fact, it, when he gets there, there is no city there. There is just muddy fields. And he realizes that he is one of the people who is then going to have to build the city. And for some people, that might seem like a big disappointment. Um, for him, it, it really wasn't. Um, and he sort of threw himself into this task. But also because he came from some such an impoverished background, you know, he recalls that one of his first meals with the youth brigade he's assigned to, they have um, sausage, uh, you know, for dinner. And he says, it's the first time I remember becoming sick from overeating. And that is such a remarkable thing, because I think, you know, we our tendency is to think of communism um, in general, but these years in particular, the the Stalinist years of the late 40s and early 50s, as being moments of deprivation. Um, And they certainly were moments of deprivation for some people, but for others, it it was in fact experienced very, very differently. Um, And that was certainly the case for some of these young Polish uh, men and women who went to, you know, build the, the town of Novohuta. Yeah, and certainly when you put it in the larger context of deprivation during the Second World War and repression and all the violence, this opportunity to re totally refashion society, your world, your life is incredibly appealing, right? And it's really the only alternative in a way. I mean, what else are you going to have if you're, as you know, you know, if you're if you if you stay in a rural context, um, your chances for upward mobility uh, are considerably less, right? Especially once collectivization is initiated. I wanted to ask a question about those who were less desperate, maybe those who were less convinced. So how did these regimes go about convincing people that socialism really was the way, the only way, right? How did the regimes inculcate these values through through media and organizations and other modes of disseminating information? Yeah, well, um, you know, one of one of the things that we can say about communist regimes is that they did have, for the most part, um, a monopoly on the domestic uh, media. So there is uh, censorship under communism, although it's not actually as formalized in the early Stalinist period as some people imagine. It actually becomes much more formalized later. 
But because of this, um, you know, with communist sympathizers for the most part in charge of, you know, newspapers, radio, um, and uh, and uh, other other forms of public media, it there are many ways to to kind of get your message out. The radio was, I think, the dominant media actually of the late 40s and early 1950s, and so. Radio programs were one prominent way in which communists tried to get their message across and, you know, also made it more possible for people to uh, purchase radios. Um, uh, But also in some communities, um, communist regimes would set up loudspeakers actually also in uh, small villages that would, you know, have uh, radio broadcasts playing for the entire community. Um, In some uh, workplaces, for example, they also played radio broadcasts uh, while people worked. And there were also, um, in addition to radio programs, you know, films and other forms of popular media um, designed to promote a, a communist worldview. One of the things we can also say, though, is that communists um, promoted literacy. <laughs> so uh, especially in the parts of Eastern Europe, so in the Balkans, for example, where there was um, less uh, literacy, um, communist regimes really tried to promote not only the education of children, but also had adult literacy programs. And as part of these literacy programs, they would be trying to get people to understand communist ideas. This, this actually isn't in the book, but I am recalling an example from the work of uh, Elidor Mihili, who works on Albania. And he talks about in the early 1950s, communist activists going to rural Albanian villages and trying to show not only films, but also things like film strips, for example, to educate the population to see the world according to a, a, a communist a communist worldview. So, you know, when you when you have a regime that is devoted to one particular ideology, um, it gives you a lot of opportunities to present that. I mean, one one of the things that I think historians debate is the extent to which uh, communists were actually successful in persuading people um, to see the world according to the tenets of communist ideology. And I think that's a very difficult question for people to, to answer maybe even an impossible one for people to, to answer. I I think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's like, where does persuasion and an actual genuine belief in the principles begin? I mean, it's really could be a fine line. And how do you determine that without looking at people's biographies? And even so, there's so much crafting of these biographies that you don't know who the intended audience was. Often it's the authorities. So it's really tricky when working with the uh, official sources or even the unofficial ones. Oh, yeah. And in fact, even when you said even the unofficial ones, right, Um, you know, if we have interviews with people who have left Eastern Europe, right, as opponents and and fled to the West, um, you know, those people tell their stories, but they're then also, you know, crafting their stories for a different kind of audience, an anti-communist audience. So, you know, they're going to present themselves in in ways in that in that instance that would emphasize their uh, resistance to communism. Whereas, if they were at home, they might present themselves 
themselves very differently. So I think this is this is one of the questions that historians in general really wrestle with in in thinking about communist regimes. Um, although I would say it's it's an issue for all regimes, right? But but certainly one that um, historians of Eastern Europe have particularly had to confront. Right, certainly. If we're talking about a one-party system in which surveillance is quite active and um, anything that's found that is anti-regime, you know, on your person or in, in your home could land you in jail or at least marginalize you in some way. I actually wanted to continue on this topic of persuasion and kind of the relationship between persuasion and coercion. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that with respect to collectivization of agriculture, because of course, we're talking about societies that are highly agrarian, just like under Stalin, the aim was to modernize agriculture and free up uh, all these peasants for factory work, right? To, to basically turn these peasants into laborers. So how, how did collectivization work uh, function on the ground? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And I will say here that my thinking has really been um, influenced by the work of Catherine Verdery and Gail Kligman and their sort of team of researchers about collectivization in, in Romania, which is, uh, I think, really one of the best things in English that's been written about collectivization in, in Eastern Europe. And work like theirs, I think, shows that there were a wide variety of means that communists used to try and persuade peasants that it would be in their interest to join collectives. I think it's it's one of the interesting things about the communist approach to the countryside that they were very invested in getting peasants to agree to join collective farms. In other words, the state wasn't simply going to take over the land and throw people off of it. Instead, right, peasants were pressured to volunteer um, in the sense that you can be pressured to volunteer, which is, of course, a contradiction, right? To to join collective farms, right? To pool their lands together and work them cooperatively. And there is clearly an, a, an economic rationale behind this, a way of creating um, more efficient agriculture. And as you said, to sort of free up labor from the countryside to man the, the factories that regimes are trying to build to build elsewhere. Nonetheless, this this is a, a sort of uh, in, indeed a, a top down operation, but it's one that is also in some ways uh, motored by a, a form of consent, which you know it wouldn't have to be that way, but yet but yet it is right. So communist activists in the countryside need to convince people to consent. However, they clearly use a lot of really coercive means to try to try to try and do that. Uh, you know, which could become even you know beating people up or just coming by and visiting them every day, saying, "Have you thought about it? Are you willing to join the collective now? <laughs> are are you sure? Are you willing to join?" And and because of these coercive methods you know, some people will agree to join a collective and then at any opportunity renege on their decision. So I think one of the things that we see, and it's again, a little bit different in different countries, but in general, um, collectivization in Eastern Europe actually takes much longer than you might expect. In many places, it's not complete until the 1960s. 
and and part of the reason is that even with all of the coercion they can muster, it's difficult for communists to actually persuade peasants to give up their control over their own land and to agree to join a collective. And that even when people join, because they're pressured to join, at any opportunity, they will renege on their decision and, you know, um, collectives will, will dissolve. So it's actually kind of a really maybe surprisingly long and, and, and tumultuous process if we compare it to collectivization in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, um, which, uh, you know, took less time, but at the cost of great loss of life, which, you know, you don't, you don't see in Eastern Europe, even, even with the sort of coercive methods that communists are using. They're, they're not, you know, starving people out as they did in, in the Soviet Union. Right. And in some cases, just giving up altogether, like in the case of Poland and Yugoslavia. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about socialist modernity. So what what was socialist modernity and how does framing Eastern Europe uh, through this lens complicate conventional narratives about communist regimes in Eastern Europe? Well, one of the goals of communist governments all over Eastern Europe was to create a modern societies um, to bring their people into the the modern world. And I, I think communists had, you know, some particular ideas about what modernity would be, which is why I've used the term socialist modernity instead of just modernity, um, in that these would be, you know, highly industrialized societies that uh, you know, would be, you know, devoted to making everyday life better for everyone. And so uh, maybe unlike modernity in the capitalist world, there would be a bit of, a, of an egalitarian emphasis. Um, nonetheless, this was also about making a better quality of life for everyone. And that did mean providing people with better quality housing, with, you know, the modern conveniences of um, electricity and central heating and, you know, running hot water and, um, you know, plumbing and all of these kinds of things that we would associate with a a modern um, urban existence. Nonetheless, there is also an idea that, you know, while uh, everyday life might be getting better for everyone, that communists, um, or good communists anyway, should have in their mind, you know, the idea that prosperity should be there for everyone, um, so that it shouldn't be so much about, you know, accumulating stuff for yourself, <laughs> uh, or, or accumulating stuff for yourself within reason. So the Soviet leader, uh, Khrushchev was quoted as saying, you know, it's it's not bad if, you know, uh, along the way with socialism, um, we offer people a little bit of bacon and a little bit of butter, <laughs> sort of, you know, implying that the goals of socialism should be to, in fact, give people a, a better quality of life, but at the same time, not to make uh material consumption, sort of the end all and, 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 and be all of life. But I think one of the things that people don't think about when they think about communism is the fact that it might, in fact, have improved people's standard of living at all, when, in fact, it, it did for, for many people. Not everyone, 
right? So, you know, people who had been wealthier or more privileged uh, before the establishment of communist regimes um, may have felt as if their standard of living went down. But for many people, you know, it was only under communism that they began to enjoy some of these accoutrements of, of modern life, the kinds of things that we would see very necessary to our existence today. Right. Like running water, having uh, a two-week holiday every year, um, opportunities for leisure, for cultural pursuits that members of, of course, the rural populations wouldn't have had access to, but even the laboring class, right? Because they wouldn't have been able to afford it, or it wouldn't even have been considered respectable for them to attend such types of, of, of events. I was going to ask a little more about consumerism, but I want to actually make sure we have enough time here. And I wanted to talk a little bit about agency and also the intentions of communist leaders. So, you know, there's this conventional belief that ordinary people in Eastern Europe lacked agency, that they were passive, and that the communist leadership ruled in a a very dictatorial, self-interested manner. But of course, you know, both of us are scholars of the region, and we know it's more complicated than this. So could you offer an example or two that presents a different portrait of the leadership and ordinary individuals. So where we see this agency playing out among ordinary individuals, but also where you see leadership uh, that is not just self-interested. Oh, yeah. So, and and I think your question brings up a, a number of, of important things. One in which, you know, we, we often talk about communist states as if they're kind of faceless entities, right? And even in this conversation, I've used the word regime, which kind of implies a, a state that, you know, runs on its own motor. But of course, right, states are nothing but, you know, people, <laughs> people, uh, you know, with their, their own, you know, interests and um, contradictions. And communist regimes also um, change o- over time, right, and are not necessarily only interested in their own um, perpetuation. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, one example that comes to mind um, with that is the Czechoslovak reform movement of 1968 when reformers within the Communist Party were convinced that it was time uh, for socialist Czechoslovakia to become more democratic. So according to them, communism had um, needed to be less democratic in its first years in order to become established. But by the mid to late 1960s, it had it had done so. Um, it didn't face the, the same threats from outside, and so um, they they wanted to create a a more um, democratic form of socialism, which they felt was appropriate to their country's um, stage stage of development. They were ultimately not able to do that because uh, it uh, threatened their their socialist neighbors and the Soviet Union and who thought they were they were going they were going too far and they were forced to roll back to roll back those reforms. But there are, you know, quite a number of instances of people within communist parties who wanted to, you know, make different kinds of change because they they thought it was the right thing to do, not because it was going to um, you know, further their own power. And at, at the same time, the other half of your question was about the agency of of ordinary people. And I think that's also something that is really important. You know, communist regimes were definitely dictatorships at the same time. 
they did have to respond to pressure from their populations um, at various moments. Um, And in fact, many communist leaders were responsive to those pressures because they, they saw themselves as responsible to the people um, and, and especially to workers. And, you know, uh, we could take, for example, the case of Poland where uh, in the 1970s, Polish workers or students or various combinations thereof um, take to the streets at various moments to protest government policies. And their leaders, for the most part, give in. Um, this happens in 1970. It happens in 1976. It, it happens again in 1980 when we get the establishment of the um, Solidarity Trade Union and the larger Solidarity Movement. These are all examples of you know ordinary people deciding that they need to take to the streets to tell their communist leaders, you know, to, in this case, it's, it's about, um, you know, initially rolling back uh, price hikes on the, the price of meat and things like that. But, you know, these are ways in which uh, ordinary people are making their, their interests quite, quite well known um, and, and, and forcing their governments to moderate their or change their decisions um, based upon a popular, popular opinion. Right. And then the regimes also have to contend with this younger generation, right, that were they were born in the 40s and 50s and they're coming of age and they have different expectations than their parents. Of course, there's, you know, they, they often have access to uh, information about the West, certainly the music and fashions of the West. And so you also discuss in your book ways in which the regime has to offer them some of these opportunities for cultural engagement or consumer opportunities, right? So that they can secure some sense of legitimacy from this new generation that that is not willing to sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's definitely the the story of late socialism, right? Communists have come to power saying that part of their job is to create a better quality of life for people. And they they find themselves really, really held to that, right? And as you said, younger generations have different ideas about what it means to have a better quality of life. And it means not only, right, to have a decent apartment with, you know, central heating and running water. um, It means, you know, being able to take vacations and to find nice Christmas presents for your children, but also to be able to listen to certain kinds of music um, and to have, you know, other opportunities for leisure and to have what people sort of keep redefining what it means, right, in a sense, to have a, a decent life, to have a better life. And they do really, I think, try to hold their governments accountable to their promises, and regimes are, in fact, held held accountable in, in many ways. And that costs them in the end. I mean, literally, <laughs> right? So I wanted to ask about women. So, of course, women alongside the proletariat and impoverished peasantry and Roma were among the groups that ostensibly had the most to gain under communism, right? Their lives had potentially the, the most transformative uh, possibilities, So how does communism transform the lives of women and how does it not? What challenges do women continue to face uh, under communism? 
Yeah, well, thanks a lot for asking that question. Um, you know, certainly one of the things I really wanted to do in this book was to integrate uh, gender history into the the general narrative of Eastern Europe under communism and beyond. And you know, this is this is a complicated story, right? You know, on the one hand, communist regimes definitely give women a new legal equality that they often had not had before. Uh, 1945, right, in that women become legally equal to men um, within marriage and in terms of rights to their children um, and in terms of their ability to control their own opportunities. Women get access to education and, in fact, um, you know, move into higher education in greatly increased numbers. Um, They get access to all new kinds of professions. At the same time, um, this is a sort of self-interested policy on behalf of uh, communist regimes in that they need women's labor to um, support the, uh, you know, industrialization of, of society so that women are allowed into new professions, but women are also um, expected to work, right? Uh, so both men and women will be expected um, to be to be workers under communism. But for many women, this is not necessarily a burden um, because it gives them a new uh, economic independence that they had not that they had not seen before. At the same time, there is um, not the same uh, concerted effort to take away women's domestic responsibilities. So throughout the communist period, women continue to be the ones who would be held responsible for things like uh, childcare and other forms of domestic labor. Um, Communist states will attempt to provide some state supports for preschools and nurseries and, you know, laundry services and things like that, but they will, they will never be able to meet all demand um, for, for those services. Gender historians have also shown that while um, there is a strong rhetoric of gender equality in the Stalinist period, um, that this begins to kind of fade away in the 1960s. And um, by the 1970s, in most countries across the region, um, there is a renewed emphasis on women as mothers, um, so that, you know, women will still be expected to, to be workers, but there is a new push for women to see themselves maybe first and foremost as mothers and to have more children. Um, and this is in response to lower birth rates uh, around the region and uh, a sort of demographic pressure to increase populations, a, a problem that I might add that has only increased in Eastern Europe since since 1989, um, and that actually proves quite resistant to any attempts by governments to actually um, change reproductive decisions. Um, so, you know, I would say that it it's kind of a mixed a mixed bag, right? Communism does not simply make women equal or take away um, the ways in which women might um, face 
discrimination in their lives or some of the gendered responsibilities that are placed on women. Nonetheless, it does give uh, many women more independence than they had ever had um, before. What about the issue of sexual minorities? So LGBTQ individuals and, and regime openness and tolerance. Yeah, so it is under communism that um, legal restrictions or prohibitions on homosexuality are taken away in in much of Eastern Europe. So outside of Poland, um, uh, homosexual acts were often illegal um, around the region, and that that changes uh, in most places in the, the 1960s. Um, which could certainly be seen as as an advance. At the same time, there is little public acceptance of uh, homosexuality under communism. So while gay people might no longer face, you know, criminal prosecution um, for you know engaging in homosexual relationships, nonetheless, they don't necessarily find much of a wider social acceptance, and. That is something that um, actually remains an issue in Eastern Europe. Nonetheless, there are certainly um, gay people who manage to live, uh, you know, fulfilling lives under communism, but they they tend to have to do it by hiding their sexual orientation as opposed to being open about it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the compromises individuals felt like they were forced to make. So we know we've talked about how people have experienced upward mobility and they had opportunities for travel, often just within the bloc or within a particular country. If we're talking about places like Romania or Albania, they had time for leisure, but they still, of course, lived under this one party system uh, where their civil and political rights were curtailed. And they were also subject to surveillance uh, by the security services and, of course, portions of the population uh, to varying degrees, depending on the country we're talking about, cooperated in reporting on neighbors or co-workers, even friends. So how can we understand such practices in a kind of more nuanced and balanced way? Why, why would people have cooperated? Why would they have made such moral compromises? Well, you know, there, there are all kinds of reasons that people may have cooperated with with communist regimes. Um, I mean, in the examples you point out with people, in, in fact, cooperating with um, the, the secret police, that's that's a sort of um, extreme example. Um, you know, many people do that out of uh, fear, um, you know, for their own situation, because they are afraid that um, either they or their children or spouses will suffer consequences if they don't agree um, to cooperate with the secret police. Although there are some people who cooperate with the secret police uh, because they believe in what they're doing and they're ideologically motivated. I don't know that that's the majority of people, although that's a very difficult thing to, to say. Uh, but I think, you know, most people were never asked um, whether or not they would be informers for the secret police. Yet at the same time, before 1989, you know, a few people were in kind of direct opposition to their communist governments. Um, and, and I think that's for a wide variety of reasons. Some may have felt that that was simply 
a, a hopeless thing to do that, um, you know, the regime wouldn't change no matter what they did. But I think for other people, it's because the, the important thing for them was to live their own lives in the best way that they could. And for many, the best way to do that was to avoid coming into open conflict with uh, the government. So I, I think that we can't necessarily um, judge people for, you know, wanting to live the best lives they could for themselves and, and, and their families and for making the, the choice to concentrate on how to best do that for themselves as opposed to putting themselves at risk for uh, an, unknown, an unknown future. Right, or even sacrificing your child's future. And I, I find that this yes. is challenging to convey to American <laughs> undergraduates because they're kind of very dichotomous and they're thinking about this, that, oh, it's immoral, but often you're in a situation where you, you have to make these compromises in this context. So, okay, I'd like to get to the point of collapse now and then into the 90s. So, you know, you have the 80s uh, and the revolutions of 1989. Maybe you can kind of give us a snapshot and just briefly talk about why things unravel, and then we'll move on to the 90s. Right. So it's a very, very big question. Why, why do things unravel in, in 1989? And there, there's not just one reason, but I think, um, you know, just briefly to say that uh, in the 1980s, much of Eastern Europe, not all of it, but actually much of it, finds itself in a very difficult economic situation. Um, that's particularly true in Hungary and Poland, um, also in um, Yugoslavia, for a, a variety of reasons, but one of which being that um, these countries have become um, in debt to the West and they find themselves needing to make ever higher interest payments on their loans in hard currency, not sure exactly how to do it. And this also means that the standard of living in these countries begins to go down, um, and this creates some resentment on the part of the population. As this is happening, um, you know, we also have a change of leadership in the Soviet Union, and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev wants to promote uh, different kinds of uh, economic and political reform. And this gives a sort of new life to uh, reformers in, in Eastern Europe itself. Um, and so one of the things that we tend to think about 1989 is that it's something that happened really suddenly. And certain aspects of that are true, but I think um, we also need to remember that in some parts of Eastern Europe, there was a reform process that had been going on for quite a number of years before 1989. Probably the best example of that is in um, Hungary, where, you know, reformers in the Communist Party had been thinking about ways to bring uh, market mechanisms into the uh, economy for quite a long time. And as part of doing that, um, they are also thinking about different ways to democratize the uh, political process, um, which includes even allowing uh, open elections and um, the existence of different political parties so that 
well before the dramatic events of 1989, um, the Hungarians are themselves um, agreeing to actually multi-party elections in in early in early 1990, and the Hungarians also provide a bit of a motor to some of the more dramatic events of 1989 when they open up their border with Austria, putting a a hole in the so-called Iron Curtain. And it's through this border with Austria that some uh, East German vacationers who are vacationing in Hungary for the summer holidays decide to try and use that border to leave East Germany and go to to West Germany. And this uh, becomes a a stream of people um, trying to leave uh, East Germany. And they're they're trying to leave East Germany because they've become very dissatisfied um, with the East German government um, because it has uh, been resistant to reform. So where um, the Hungarian government has been, um, you know, trying a wide variety of things, to change its um, uh, economic situation and to um, pluralize its politics. The East German government has has not been doing that at all and been quite resistant to it. So um, uh, East Germans start to, in essence, kind of vote with their feet um, and um, this uh, exodus begins to happen in the summer of 1989, which then, you know, begins to spark demonstrations later that fall uh, within East Germany itself. As some people say, this is ridiculous that we have the society where all these young people are trying to leave. And instead, we should stand up and see about um, changing things here. So what seems to happen in a moment actually has a bit a bit of a longer trajectory, but it, it then, you know, quickly takes on a kind of a domino effect um, so that by the end of 1989, communist regimes have collapsed uh, basically all all across the region. Yeah, and certainly the way it was conveyed in the press, uh, you have Tom Brokaw at the Berlin Wall and other reporters presenting it as a miraculous, magical moment, uh, which it was, of course, for many, um, but one that came out of nowhere, which it didn't. I'd like to move on to the 90s now because, of course, post-socialism was greeted, you know, the 89 and the immediate post-socialist period was greeted with a lot of enthusiasm among, you know, ordinary people, among experts on the region, but that enthusiasm wanes as the 90s wear on. So can you talk a little bit about why this is happening? And maybe I don't necessarily like to put people into neat categories such as winners and losers, but there are some that are clearly winners and some are losers and then some who are just kind of continuing to muddle through and they don't see really major differences between the socialist and post-socialist period. So maybe you could talk a little bit about this period, the 90s. Yeah, I think, you know, after what happens in in, in 1989, um, there is maybe this popular sense across Eastern Europe that things will begin to be radically different very soon. And that this is an idea uh, fed, I think, by the West also, that um, now that communist regimes have collapsed, that Eastern Europeans could expect a new prosperity that, you know, uh, all of a sudden their lives would dramatically improve. Um, And of, of course, this 
didn't happen. <laughs> um, you know, capitalism doesn't actually doesn't actually work that way. Um, it it doesn't immediately make uh, the masses richer. And and I think there was a a period of profound um, disillusionment among um, some people, especially, you know, in the mid to, to late 1990s, when it became clear that, um, you know, the fall of communism would not mean that their quality of life would automatically go up. And instead, um, for many, it meant that it might go down. Because, you know, one thing that communist regimes had provided to their citizens was definitely a certain kind of economic stability um, in terms of pretty much guaranteed um, employment, um, state-sponsored um, health care, and also a stability of prices for necessities like rent, food, basic energy costs, and, and things like that. And that all disappears in the 1990s as the governments of Eastern Europe are pressured to adopt a neoliberal approach to, uh, to capitalism and to remove as many state supports as as possible. And so, you know, this definitely provides some opportunities for people, um, especially, you know, educated young people living in urban areas who are well positioned um, to make the most of a new capitalist economy. And, you know, there are some people who uh, find that, you know, their lives improve dramatically. But for many others, that's not the case. Um, particularly people living in, in rural areas, um, older people, and also uh, factory workers, because the older industries of Eastern Europe um, had not necessarily been profit-making institutions um, under communism that wasn't a requirement right, to make a profit. But that, that means that guaranteed um, employment that had existed under um, communism had to, had to fade away, right, under the pressures of the, the capitalist economy. So yeah, I'm sorry, was there another, another part? I'm thinking there was another part to your question, and I'm now... No, not. I was just, you know, thinking about the categories of people. So there's winners, there's losers, and there's just people who muddle through, like, life is hard regardless, right? You have to work, and you can't trust the government. And so that's one of the continuities also. I wanted to ask about the return to Europe, right? So one of the other things that happens after the collapse in 89, and then especially in the early 2000s, is Eastern Europe returns to Europe. I'm thinking about EU accession here. But what does this return entail? What does it mean for previous solidarities? What does it mean for ordinary individuals? I think it's also one of these great promises, right, the return to Europe. But there's also been recently a lot of kind of questioning of this, what this means. Yeah. So on, on the most basic level, the idea of the return to Europe means joining the European Union, which becomes the foremost um, policy goal, uh, for, foreign policy goal of East European governments after 1989. And in order to join the European Union, uh, East European countries will, um, you know, need to actually radically change some of their uh, legal systems to meet a lot of economic benchmarks, um, which 
add to some of the economic dislocation that we were just um, just talking about, that return to Europe will therefore also exacerbate some of the differences between those who benefit from the changes um, that occur after 1989 and those who don't benefit. So, um, you know, again, for um, younger, educated, uh, more urban populations, joining the EU opens up a huge field of opportunity, the possibility to work anywhere um, in Europe and to increase all kinds of connections with people across the continent. For others, it it doesn't do that. Um, I mean, it it does definitely open up possibilities for work, um, for manual laborers, as well as for educated professionals. But this also then just contributes to drain of workers away from Eastern Europe itself, which uh, has an even worse effect on some of the people who are left behind, right, who aren't as mobile. Um, But the the return to Europe moves beyond just the fact of joining the EU because it's it's also associated with a a different kind of orientation. So, and this is something I I allude to in the book, but maybe don't talk about as much as I, I might have liked to. But under socialism, right, it's not as if Eastern Europe was cut off from the rest of the world. Under socialism, you know, Eastern Europe had lots of connections to different parts of the world, you know, including many countries in the global south who were supportive of socialism. And a return to Europe has also meant kind of cutting away those ties and turning the focus of Eastern Europe back to the West, to becoming part of a European continent that for many people is very much identified with being white and also with being um, Christian. So there's a kind of mental reorientation that's accompanied this return to Europe that has also fed into some of today's uh, populist um movements in Eastern Europe. Um, So certainly in Hungary, for example, the Fidesz government has become a really big voice in the idea of a a white Christian Europe that needs to defend itself um, against possible, the way the Orban regime would put it, is, is more like invaders coming from Uh, Asia and Africa, which they largely figure as being um, Muslim and therefore therefore outsiders. So the the idea of the return to Europe has these these other aspects as well. Right. So negative connotations as well. And of course, it's not only Eastern European leaders that are espousing populist discourses. And actually, my final question was in relation to populism and to a period that scholars of the region are increasingly identifying as a major turning point for Eastern Europe. So uh, the global financial crisis of 2008 and the uh, resultant rise uh, of populism. So where do we see populists gaining traction in Eastern Europe? You mentioned Hungary and Poland, but can you provide some other examples? And also how are populists consolidating power? 
And what is the impact on daily life? You mentioned the promotion of an exclusionary notion of the nation and of faith, but could you talk a little bit about how populism is affecting daily life, uh, especially for minorities, uh, be they ethnic minorities or sexual minorities? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we've seen populist parties gain power um, in Hungary and in Poland, also uh, in the Czech Republic, although um, the populist leader there, um, Babish, is a little bit different from Orban or the Law and Justice Party in Poland. Nonetheless, he was a populist leader, but there have also, and also in uh, Slovenia um, and other places, there have been um, a lot of support for right-leaning populist parties since 2008. And the support for these parties has often come from the people who were most disadvantaged after 1989. So the people who were disappointed by the changes that took place as part of the turn away from communism, which is in a way quite ironic because, you know, Eastern Europe's contemporary populist parties generally present themselves as being very strongly anti-communist. So they also reject the communist past. Nonetheless, the biggest core of their supporters is people who have felt pushed aside since uh, the events of 1989 and to feel either um, economically disadvantaged or culturally disadvantaged. And so it's it's those groups that have provided the the real motors of support for populists um, across the region, and and that's one kind of interesting thing about these movements, which is that they see themselves as a reaction against neoliberal uh, European elites. So the people who you know, basically benefited from the changes of the the 1990s. And part of this uh, is these populist movements often cast the ideas about gender equality or equality for LGBTQ people as being outside in positions of a kind of um, neoliberal EU that are against traditional kind of um, local values. So uh, in the past few years, there has been a real push for what we could call an an anti-gender movement and an anti-LGBT movement in uh, Eastern Europe. This has been uh, particularly strong in in Poland, um, but there have been elements of it, you know, not only in in Hungary, but, um, you know, in in Romania and Bulgaria, and and in fact, all over the region, you know, people really um, seeing the equality of women, but also, you know, gay people, non-binary people as something that is a threat to their societies. And, and that's certainly one of the biggest flashpoints in the region today. And you also mentioned the Roma. I think these groups have also 
promoted a kind of nationalist uh, ideology, which has been wielded, as I, as I said before, against you know immigrants wanting to come into Europe, but also has um, you know inflamed some local suspicions of, of national minorities like like the Roma. Right. And of course, these societies are also experiencing major population declines. But the rhetoric being espoused by the governments, uh, it, you know, it's so intolerant. And people, young people in particular, if they don't have an economic reason to leave, well, they have a political and certainly a moral one, uh, one related to shared values, because essentially they don't feel at home in their, their own countries because they don't agree with the, the values being uh, espoused uh, by their leaders and certainly the laws that are being passed. And if you look at the case of Poland in particular, where women have limited reproductive control, then this can be another engine for emigration. Uh, but governments are trying to boost uh, demographics uh, in countries such as Poland and Hungary. And so, you know, they're kind of undermining their initiatives. In a way, they're undermining their initiatives, but what they what they really want is more people who think like they do. Um, sure. The leader of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Jaroslav Kaczynski, likes to talk about what he calls the, the right kind of poll. And I think, you know, for someone like Kaczynski, they uh, would like to see, um, you know, uh, population growth, but population growth of the, the right kind of polls. And so in, in that sense, right. Um, kind of like during the socialist period, let the dissidents leave. We don't need them. <laughs> yeah. The to support us. Uh, except, except we're talking about, you know, large, large numbers of people. Um, sure. And sure. also, of course, right. Like, you know, a different immigration policy would solve these population issues, but mm-hmm. you know, there's clearly no appetite for, for seeing an answer to population decline from immigration for, for, for these leaders. And certainly we see parallels here in the U.S. with that. Yes. So, yes, we do. Uh, I feel like I've taken a lot of your time already. It's been such a wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Your book is fantastic, and I look forward to assigning it in the classroom, and I highly recommend it. And I just want to close by asking what your current research is focusing on. Oh, yeah. Well, so that's that's a great question. I will say that it was hard enough to finish one book during the pandemic, um, and it hasn't it hasn't been for me the um, best environment to uh, think about new new projects. But one of the things I have been thinking about is kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about um, with this kind of uh, anti-gender movement in Eastern Europe today. Um, And I'm interested in thinking about the communist roots of today's anti-gender movements. Um, And that that's something that um, I, I would be interested in, in researching in the future. Well, definitely um, it's an area that deserves a great deal of attention. And so I look forward to learning more about your research. It's obviously of interest to me, Fortunately or unfortunately, (laughs) uh, if we want to look at these kind of negative roots. Well, I wish you the best of luck. And I thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. Well, thanks very much for having me. This was great.